Golf's no different from hockey. Requires talent, self-discipline. Golf requires goofy pants and a fat ass. You should talk to my neighbor, the accountant, probably a great golfer, huge ass. How do you measure yourself with other golfers? By height. It's a very, very special honor. I'm Paula Creamer, and you're listening. Well, we're waiting. Hi, this is Martin Cove, a.k.a. John Kreese from Cobra Kai. And you're listening to Quiet, Please. Let the word go out from here across the land. Let Daddy Noonan uh, approve. Hiya, boys. Nice day for golf, eh? Quiet, please. Oh, you got secrets, eh? Hey, this is Shooter McGavin. You're listening to the... Hey, you guys. Hey, we're trying to have a podcast over here. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Quiet Please podcast. Um, our venerable host, Alan DePew, is not here this week, so we're left with a very subpar uh, fill-in for the host here. Hey, um, hey. come on, man. <laughs> we'll, we'll do, I'll, I'll do my best, um, but Alan's out this week on some remote island and christian is uh on another work trip the young whippersnapper that he is um but we do have this week our our standard panel of brendan elliott who's uh founder of little linksters and freelance golf writer with a bunch of different publications um and always bob baldessari coming to you live from kentucky um and Bob is, is, as you all know, the uh, the PGA entrepreneur wrapped in in his PGA of America card and, uh, you know, limited to what he can do, but he's got all the great ideas. And, and uh, one of these days, people are going to take the shackles off and, and start doing some of the things that Bob is all about. So, Bobby, uh, you got a bourbon in hand? I do not, but I can oh. be ripped back in one minute. <laughs> so we have a special guest this week um and it's scott fawcett and scott is the founder of decade golf um for those of you who who may or may not have heard of decade decade is an awesome uh course management strategy um it's it's an app right scott yeah, I mean, obviously, it started out kind of as an accident, but it's it's definitely a statistics portal. But the real point of decade is teaching you how to stop wasting shots. Yeah, and I think the cool the coolest thing about decade is it's it's definitely not the traditional way that people think about managing your way around the golf course. But it's data driven. It's tour proven. It's a little bit controversial when people love to start throwing. So, I don't know if decades controversial. I'm controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I try to I try to separate myself from my work, but uh, unfortunately, I'm not very good at that. <laughs> but decade decade is awesome, and we're really pumped to have you on. And uh, welcome to the show. Awesome, thanks. I really uh, I I enjoy doing these. It's uh, and back to my controversial. Ever since I punted Twitter, I haven't done as many uh, podcasts because it's it's funny because I realize how many people just want me to use my platform to throw their podcast out there. I've gotten far fewer requests since uh, since punting it, but it was definitely a net positive life decision. So, <laughs> such <is> life. <laughs> well, explain to us a little bit about how you even started to begin to to 
you know, come up with the idea of decade and, and where it all started. It's pretty funny because so, you know, I played all the sports growing up, but it was, was definitely better at golf than anything else. Um, you know, I'm six one two fifteen, so I'm a pretty big guy to be a 50 year old golfer. So back in the day, I was just a giant compared to everyone else. So I, I really hit the ball very far compared to everyone back in the day. And it definitely hid a lot of what my weaknesses were. I don't think I ever realized how bad, I mean, I knew how bad some of my game was, but I don't think I ever realized it. And so once I got into college, unfortunately I had a couple of injuries. So by the time I actually graduated from college, I really probably only played like 30, 54 whole events in my life. And I, I turned pro, I won a couple of times on the Hooters tour. So I was actually like pretty good. I mean, again, I never got corn fairy status the first time I played professionally, but I would say I wasn't a guy that was just out there totally kidding myself. Um, and about the time I probably was starting to figure it out was when 9-11 happened. I missed at Q school by a shot. And I was just exhausted with being broke for five years. And so I, I kind of just stepped away when Texas deregulates electricity market. And, you know, luckily for me, that went well. That was in 2002. And I started playing a lot of poker then, you know, I joined a country club. Online poker was still kind of cool and definitely started studying the game a lot. And then I, I met Chris Como actually uh, playing in an underground poker game here in Dallas. And we were actually <laughs> friends for like a year before finally we're like, you know, what do you do for a living? And Como was like, I teach golf. I'm like, I play professional golf. It had never come up before because in illegal card rooms, you don't exactly sit around and talk about what you do for a living. So <laughs> the very next day I went out and got a, a lesson with him, really just kind of talked. And it was my, like my first time to ever hear modern ball flight laws and just a bunch of the stuff that I just didn't really understand. And honestly, just the human body is amazing at what it does and, and simply telling my body the correct thing, like, hey, to hit a fade, your the club face is actually pointed left of the target, not hitting these just wipey flares you're used to. And like once you understand that stuff, which again parlays into decade, once you understand how it really works, it's it's honestly not again, it's really hard to do, but it's not that hard to do relative to whatever your abilities are. So I really started studying poker a lot. And then in 2008, I was talking with a buddy over dinner and I just said, I'm a much better player now as a, as a 35 year old amateur with a full-time job than I was as a 25 year old full-time playing professional. And he asked me why I thought that was. And I was like, honestly, poker, I was a total lunatic on the golf course the first time around. And honestly, I'm kind of a lunatic at the poker table too, but I quickly learned the lesson when somebody does something stupid, you shouldn't berate them because even when they win your money, cause that guy's going to keep making that same mistake. Don't teach him. And so it really taught me about, you know, just emotional control and regulation because you're, you're still just as pissed off, but you better not show it. But then just also understanding the math, even though I've got finance and economics degrees and would consider myself a math slash logic guy, I'd never really thought of golf as a math game like chess, backgammon, poker. These are all obviously math games if you understand them. Um, and so I just really started thinking about like shot patterns then is like the deck of cards in, in poker. And that's what's in, you know, delivering the variance, if you will, the luck of the game, just happening to hit the right shot at the right time. And then in, you know, I actually entered Q school that year as a 35 year old amateur, got through all four stages. I'm the oldest by 12 years to make it to the final stage as an amateur, which not a whole lot of 35 year old amateurs enter Q school. So it's not really a, a difficult award to hold, but I got through, I got, you know, crappy corn fairy status, but I did go try to kind of play part-time for two or three years. And then when I was getting my amateur status back the second time in 2013, well, 2011 was technically when they released strokes gain putting. And I used to commentate, commentate, 
post on a on an online poker blog called two plus two quite a bit. There's a golf forum. And I kind of live blogged my my Q school runs and just different stuff for a couple of years. And then when strokes gain putting came out in June of 2011, I was like, oh, my God, if we know how many strokes it takes to hole out and we already understood shot patterns because of launch monitors like TrackMan and GC quads. I was like, I feel like we can solve a problem of course management here. But the first post that I wrote was is drive for show putt for dough really true. And I'm lucky I did because it time stamped my thought process in June of 2011. Cause so many people think Mark Brody is the wizard behind strokes game. But so many people think I just repackaged his book and I'm like, you can see me thinking about this actually live and in person. Like you can see me working it out because it's just a crappy old forum. You can see right. me working out the thought process and then once they released the entire Strokes Game catalog in, in 2013, I was like, that's it, man. I can, you know, everyone else who's the math side of the game thinks of statistics for how can I show you where your weaknesses are? How can I tailor practice plans? Right. And as yep. a player, the obvious use for me to me was was course management because it's just been this mystical, elusive part of the game where, you know, people are like, you've got to honor what the architect intended or, hey, that bunker was placed there to be kind of a... Uh, uh, you know, make this a blind shot. And I'm like, well, satellites and data, there's no, there's no guessing anymore. So I did all this work through 2013 and early 14. And fortunately slash unfortunately for me, two weeks before the Texas amateur in 2014, where was, I was going to use it for the first time. I got a cortisone shot in my right elbow and the doctor paralyzed my right arm for a couple of days. And shit. He, he was like, I literally just wrote a half a billion cells of Excel code. I've been doing this for six months. Like you just can't imagine the level of stupidity I went to with analyzing this data solely for my own game. But the guy's like, you really shouldn't play golf for three or four months until all the inflammation just whatever I did until that's completely gone. And so conveniently for me, Will Zalatoris was just a 17-year-old junior golfer. I used to have to explain who Will was. I don't really have to anymore. <laughs> um, he's just a kid that when he moved from California to Dallas was those couple of years that I was playing professional golf again. And so he's just the little nine-year-old kid that's tagging around with the corn fairy player from the club. And so we do chipping and putting games and play and whatever. But, I, you know, and I kind of mentored him, but not really too much because I didn't really know what I was doing either. And he had David Price working on him with a swing. But so I called him and I was like, all right, buddy, I, I don't know why you're ranked 3,300 in the world. I've never seen a guy. I used to play a lot of golf with Fred Couples when he lived in Dallas. I've never seen someone hit the middle of the face more often than you. I don't care how bad your putting is. You should be crushing junior golf. And, and at the time, he'd never won more than a high school golf tournament. Like I say, he was ranked 3,300 in the world. We went to lunch. I explained to him everything that we were going to do and, and why. And, and there's a few things that I did that I don't even really understand why I thought to do this, but I did kind of a, a, a pre-mortem of if this doesn't work, why is it not going to work? And the one thing I know I did when I was playing professional golf, I wasn't a total idiot, but if a pin was four yards from the left side of the green and there was a lake left, again, with the seven iron, I know to aim away from that, but I would aim away from it and kind of hope I pull it. And I've never hit a golf shot on a driving range, but I sure hope I pull this. And I really do at this point now believe that that's where all the outlier shots come from. And I think that's the one thing I really hit on with him. We went out and we hit balls and I was like, I want you hitting at every ball at this white flag. And I want you to notice that you don't really hit it at it very often. You hit it left and right of it a ton. And one thing I was doing is making sure he was centering his shot pattern over the target, not like 70% left or whatever. Um, and just walking him through exactly why we were going to choose the targets we did. And God bless the kid. He went out and just was 
unbelievable in the first round. He hit every single shot exactly where I told him to. And he shot like 67 or eight and was leading. And I swear to God, I was driving home and I was thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure that kid would have shot lower if I wasn't there. Cause he would have been aiming at every single flag. <laughs> now, whether or not that's actually accurate or not, because the one thing that people don't really realize is when you give a target, that's not the flag and they hit it right at it. And they look at you and they're like, I should hit it. I should aim that at the flag. It's like, how far were you trying to hit it exactly? Cause there's an X and a Y coordinate in this hitting it close scenario. It's like, it's like the game of battleship. You've got to call out two coordinates. You don't just get to hit row B and, and just take out whatever's in row B. So driving home that day, that was my thought. Well, the next day we go back and he was nervous. He was freaking out and he hit it awful. Everything was bad that day. And he shot 70 and I was driving home and thinking that kid should have shot about 81 today. And that's when kind of the light bulb went off over the weekend. He crushed everyone one by three. You know, so that's kind of the Genesis. And then obviously the, the, the punchline to finish off the, the Genesis of decade is he went and qualified for the U.S. Junior the following week. I went down to Houston and caddied for him there. He won the U.S. Junior with me on the bag. What people mo- actually most people don't realize, he's still again just graduated from high school. He hadn't even started college yet. We went to the USAM at US uh, at Atlanta Athletic Club that summer, and he finished third out of the 312 in stroke playing qualifying. He beat the world number four in the first round, the world number five in the second round, and he lost to a guy named Zach Olson from Oklahoma State in the third round, the round of uh, uh, 16. And Zach was five under through 15, and Will was three. Will would have won every other round of 16 match. He just happened to run into the hot hand, which, again, is a little bit of why I talk about winning requires luck. Then the, the, the last part of the story is simply that the SMU coach and I, Jason Enlow, have known each other since we were, you know, in junior golf. And, you know, he's the same age as me. So he played golf at SMU when I was at Texas A&M. And he came up to me and he's like, I don't know what you're doing with Will, but it seems like it's something strategy related. Bryson fires at every single pin. He's got this idea that if it's his week, it's his week. And I can't get him to stop. Is there any way you can teach him whatever it is you're doing? So I figured out how to, again, the one thing he said is you have to do it in an indoor seminar. So you're not considered a third paid coach coaching outdoors. You know, it's an NCAA rule. So that's honestly the whole reason. Again, none of this stuff was my idea. I didn't come up with, I'm going to teach this stuff indoors because it was my thought. I was just like, well, I have to, I love Tony Robbins. I've gone to a Tony Robbins seminar before. So I'm like, I'll just model that thing and, and try to teach it indoors and I did that two months before Bryson went on to win the NCAAs and then obviously the U.S. Amateur. And, you know, at this point, it's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. I mean, 11 of the top 15 guys from PGA Tour University are decade members this year. The guys that are out there crushing the Corn Ferry Tour and PGA Tour right now. Like, it's, it's just comical to sit back and watch because when I was younger, we thought you peaked in your 30s because you had to get out on tour. You had to learn all the shots. And then you were finally ready to be a great golfer. And honestly, the last thing you need to do is learn all the shots. You need to get really good at one shot, first of all, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But what I really think was going on is you had to turn pro and, and develop your prefrontal cortex. That's the last part of the, the male's brain to develop around the age of 25. And then I think you had to take a couple of years to get experience finally with your functioning brain to finally learn how to play golf. And that wound up being about 32. And now with just a little bit of satellite images and data, I can, I can teach a kid to play with the exact same mental and, and strategic game that Tiger used in about four hours. Um, now it's really, really difficult to do. It's not, you know, it's, it's super easy to teach. It's really hard to actually implement, but that's basically the story to where now essentially everyone that's under the age of 27 
you know, 28 ish now, as we get a couple more years into this on the PJ tour, I've worked with in some form or fashion, whether they had the decade app on their own, had it through college. They've specifically sought me out like a guy like Bo Hostler after struggling initially. And just like, so I, I mean, I just get that all the time where guys are like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I'm playing pretty good and I'm just not even close. And those guys that, that, that were great in college, the, the top 10 guys from college are all great enough to be great on the PGA tour. And it's just about, again, changing the way they see a few certain problems around the golf course. So Brendan, I know this has turned on a big light bulb for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so why don't you, uh, well, so, so a Scott, bit. a little bit of what I do, I, I started a junior golf organization back in 2008 and I was working with a lot of younger kids and, um, the past, I'd say, three or four years, while I've grown my staff of teachers, I've moved back into what my passion was, was coaching high school many years ago. So I'm working with high school kids now that aren't like your top tier elite, but they're the kids that have the stuff to get to that level. And that's where I want to focus in on. I've had all kinds of ways going about it. I've been using V1 game, which is purely, and you mentioned it before, statistical driven on identifying where your weaknesses are. But as I prep for this for this podcast and looking at your system, this is what the kids desperately, desperately need. And so some of the notes I took, you know, I know I'm going to let you speak on the acronym um, on what decade is. Um, but just some of the stuff I saw in, in the video you did with foreplay is it's a lot of common sense things until you throw your math in and then it gets a little convoluted for some people, but it still makes sense. And, you know, you, you talked about the, the Venn diagrams and how you're breaking down approach shots into greens. Um, I think I want to kind of start there about what the acronym means. And then um, that, that was the fascinating thing for me is how you're breaking down hitting approach shots into the green. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is just how you talk about it, it's common sense. I mean, that's my main detractors that they want to give me a hard time. They're just like, this is all common sense, like especially a guy like Tron from No Laying Up, where I'm like, it is common sense once I told it to you. But right. I played professional golf. I won on the Hooters Tour several times. Like I was played in the U.S. Open. Like I'm, I was pretty good at golf. And I didn't know any of this stuff. Now, maybe Tron's just smarter than me. I highly doubt it. Um, but because I talk to tour players every single day where they're just like, man, I mean, I kind of knew this, but man, just hearing it really clarified it. So I, I do yeah. agree it's common sense. But how I do you implement what, it? What, what, what I disagree with is this idea that everyone has it because nobody falls out of the womb and just knows how to, to work their way around a golf course. Absolutely Even Tiger not. didn't he, in that one interview with, with Curtis strange where, you know, the, before he turned professional and you know, that we all know yep. you'll learn about finishing seconds, a great finish, whatever Tiger also in that one said that I got a real lesson the prior year when he played with Nick price. Uh, and Nick said that he fired it, you know, shot 66 and was leading and fired it like two pins that day. And Tiger's like, I fired it every single one. Like I it just didn't even compute for me. And Tiger as a young man, obviously was so much dominant than everyone on the amateur level. Like he could win, he could destroy those people playing, I would say like an idiot, because there's no way he was just playing wheels off aggressive, mm -hmm. but without optimal strategy. So it really is common sense, but it really isn't an application. Now, right. to, to your point about the, the acronym, you know, Zalatoris, after he won the Texas AM that year in 2014, he sent me a text um, one of the main things we were focusing on that week is not thinking about winning. Cause I was like, if you think about winning, 
it's just overcoming your psyche is just going to be impossible. So we're not going to even think about winning until you pull your ball out of the 72nd hole and then we can celebrate the win. But, and, and so our little joke all week, and we did it probably three or four times every day, Will would hit a great shot and I'd say great shot. And he's like, do we win yet? I'm like, no, we didn't. Let's keep going. No matter what it was like, we didn't, we haven't won yet. We got a three shot lead. Guess what, dude? <laughs> Vanderbilt happens. Like it, nothing is guaranteed here. I agree. There's, you're probably going to win, but let's finish this thing off. So I was so emotional. I'm a, I'm a sap. I'm crying like a baby over on the side of the green as I'm taking the flag off um, the 18th green. And I forgot to tell him my, my whole thing all week. I was going to be like, Hey buddy, you won. And I just totally forgot to do it. So when I'm driving home, I sent him a text. I was like, I forgot to tell you, you won, you can relax now. And he replied with, you know, I'll just never know how to thank you. You gave me 25 years of experience in five days. And that's literally when, when I didn't really think about it much, but as Enlo asked me to, to make something of it, I was like, well, I got to call it something again. I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan. Everything has to be a six or seven letter acronym. So it's easy to remember. And I'm like, well, screw it. I'm going to Tony Robbins this thing to death. I'm going to call it decade. Cause we're going to imply we're going to take decades off your learning curve. So that's the story behind it. But the acronym is simply distance, which is where we start the process. How long is the shot? Because Rather than thinking, should I get aggressive here or not? Well, the first step is how long's the shot? Are you 80 yards? Or are you 220? Because that's going to be a, the main determinant on how air quotes aggressive we get to a, a tucked pin. After that is E expectation. I'll admit it's a bit of a place filler, but I will also say that I think that the 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 strokes gain numbers again that Mark Brody created. If you're into any of this stuff, you have to read his book. Every shot counts. It's just yep. it gives you the entire background of it. But once you understand that an eight foot putt is 50 50 on the PGA Tour, it's kind of hard to get mad when you miss an eight foot putt. You mm-hmm. in a coin flip when you guess it wrong, you don't be like, ah, I'm an idiot. I suck at coin flip guessing. Like you just guess again. Like it's unfortunate, yeah. but you just guess again, and and so. The E expectation part, that's what it's about, is understanding some of these baseline numbers where 32 feet on tours where you average two putts to hole out, 165 yards in the fairways, basically where you average three strokes to hole out. 97 yards in the rough is where they average three strokes to hole out. Like anything, any par from the rough ever is a fantastic result, even on the PGA Tour. And, And again, once you understand these things, it's just hard to get pissed off. So I really tell people that the decade is at this point, it's just a diary of all the dumb stuff I used to do and <laughs> leading that cause is just being a hothead. So what we're really trying to do is, is rein that in. Cause I see it. It's just one of the most pervasive things, obviously in golf. So that's what E expectation is. C correct target. That's this baseline number where instead of thinking, um, you know, where's the right spot to miss it, or, or should I be aiming at the flag or at the middle of the green here? What we really want to be doing, because golf is the only sport in the world that's not played on a uniform field of competition, you you uh, like middle of the green is totally different information on number 18 at St. Andrews, where the green is 52 yards wide, and number 10 at Pebble Beach, where the green is 17 yards wide. Technically, middle of the green is, is not the optimal target for either of those. It's obviously way too conservative on 18 at St. Andrews, and it's actually way too aggressive on number 10 at Pebble Beach. You have to be almost aiming at almost the left edge of that green if you're you know, playing the 500 yard US open tees, you've got 200 yards coming in. So that's the correct target. A analyze is what is the surrounding hazards? What, you know, it depends on the left, what's left? Because again, one thing, and this is hard because you hear Tiger say this all the time, I missed it in the right spots this week. You gotta miss the ball in the right spots. The right spot is always somewhere towards the fat part of the green. 
Now, the real question is, how much do I not want to be short-sighted? It's not semantics either, because, you know, if you've got a pin, like the front, the short right of a green is, or the right front edge is just all kind of fairway run up and back left is just a water hazard. Well, that front right is the place to miss it. Well, I don't want to aim there and I can't really make my shot pattern either hit it close or miss it there. So I really want to be adjusting my target based on the length of the shot and what the hazard is closest to the pin. Now that will accidentally put most of my shots in the place to miss it, but it's not, you're not trying to, and, and I used to think again, I, now I looking back at it, it's so dumb. It's incredible. But I used to think that like tiger mid back swing, he'd be like, huh, doesn't feel quite right. I'll just fix it <laughs> and miss it in the right spot. I'm like, well, if he could do that, why did he just fix his swing and still hit it close? Like the neurons have fired. That's not happening. And I do know that's what a lot of people think. Like, it just doesn't feel right here. I'm just going to block it off to the right, miss it in the right spot. Dude, you just need to stay committed to your target and cross your fingers because outliers are coming. You're only getting in your own way if you start thinking about stuff like that. And then the last two are simply the process of actually hitting the shot. D, uh, uh, discipline. I was like, what is the D? D discipline <laughs> is being disciplined to actually hit it at your target. I actually, and again, I teach this stuff. This is how hard it is to do. I just played in the Texas state open two weeks ago. I shot 64 in the first round. And as a 50 year old amateur was leading go out in the second round. And I just, I played awful. And I had one shot where I, I literally, the, it was 210 yards. The pin was on the left over by a lake. This green had a spine running right down the middle. Anything, the dead center of the green on top of that spine was my target. Anything right of it was not going to be good though. And, and I was already one or two over and I didn't want to have like a 60 foot putt coming up over the ridge. Normally I would be aiming at a a, a middle of the green. And again, kind of hoping I pull it this one. I wasn't hoping I pulled it, but I didn't even realize it at the time. I was definitely hoping I didn't push it, which again, it's, it's the same thing, but I just, I wasn't fully committed into my target and I didn't hit that bad of a shot and it bounced down into the water. And it's just like, damn it. That was so obvious. I, I wasn't disciplined on the shot. And again, I try to be as open and honest as I can. It's not impressive to, 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 to post on Instagram to a hundred thousand people. I'm an idiot, but I'm trying to let people know this is stuff's really hard. And then the last one is e execute, which is then just your pre-shot routine. What I'm trying to get to people to understand is, you know, traditionally pre-shot routine was talking, taught by, okay, I'm walking in. I put my right foot in, I put my left foot in, I put the club in behind the ball. Like I'm not really carried about the physical part of your pre-shot routine. That's going to work itself out. Once you understand the real goal of the pre-shot routine is what's going on in your head, the yeah. body, you'll just get your rhythm, whatever that is. Zalatoris. I mean, 90% of my golf friends from high school, I can recognize them still from 200 yards away by how they waggle the club. I mean, you just, <laughs> You yep. just have a way you do it. And that's just going to grow with you as a player. But what you really need to understand is it's that consistent loop in your head of not thinking, don't go left, don't go right. Your pre-shot routine should take basically exactly the same amount of time, regardless of the shot, because it should just be a loop. That's what I try to have people look into on the driving range. When you're just aiming at a white flag, what are you thinking? Where are your body lines? What's going on in your head? And now take that and take it out onto the course. First of all, slow down and practice so you can actually be aware of what you're thinking. But now take that out onto the course and notice on the range, you never thought don't go left. And now here on the first hole, we got OB left on a road on the left side of the hole. And you're thinking, don't go left. Well, 
that's probably not, you know, people like I can't get my range game to the course. That's the problem. Hmm. Bobby. Oh man, Scott, uh, I've got a 3 million questions. Uh, <laughs> I got mind about 45 minutes now. <laughs> all over the place. Uh, <laughs> but my, my dad was a PGA pro, so I'm second generation. Uh, he taught a ton, taught me, taught a lot of really fine players. Uh, I'm back to teaching again. Um, and it's funny when I get golfers that come in and this happens to Brennan, it happens to you, I'm sure. He, uh, yeah, Bob, I'm not playing very well. Okay, what do we want to focus on? Let, tell me more about what's going on. Uh, let's start with the driver. You know, it's just this default thing for a lot of golfers thinking I'm not playing well holistically or they had a bad score. Let's work on the driver. Driver is fine. Um, so you're, what you've put together, I think is brilliant. Um, you know, just, I was just wondering, like, do you think, um, I guess how, how early in a one's golf career, like a beginner and immediate, like, where do you think this could help somebody? It's a tough question because, again, I, I'm a I'm a 50 year old man. I did not create the videos with an eight year old in mind. I definitely created them with a at a minimum kind of a high schoolish, close to high schoolish junior golfer. It, that's who I created it for. So that's kind of the the language I'm using to tailor it to them. But I mean, I get an email from a guy just the other day saying. Uh, I, I'm having trouble entering the stats because my kids playing U.S. Kids Tour or whatever, and their tees are up in the fairway. I'm like, don't track that kid's stats, man. Like, <laughs> just just have fun. But that kid also can watch some of the mental content. I do believe the the sooner you get a player, again, the kid's got to be really into it. He's, I mean, it's got to be kind of a unique situation for somebody that young. They've got to kind of ask for help than you right. saying, "Let's do this." I I, I believe. Um, but just understanding the, the realities of shot patterns, the realities of speed control and putting, the reality of working the driver one way and one way only, like these little things, I don't think you can get into a kid's head young enough. So it's just part of their DNA. And again, Tiger is kind of my, my model player, obviously, but you know, his parents had him meditating when he was born. I mean, literally he's, I've got a video of him where he's joking with Jada Pinkett Smith. She's like, well, what age did your mom get you meditating and he just kind of smirked he's like I mean, when i was born I'm like, <laughs> and again i don't necessarily agree with some of the ways that his parents got certain things done but i don't think that working on mindset from the earliest age physically possible i don't think that's a bad thing in this modern world of phones and distractions and social media to get a kid to have some stuff and i talk a lot about meditation and mindfulness in the app and how to to use that not only in in, in golf but you know taking it out into your just regular life as a parent spouse employee boss whatever it is yeah so, like if i can throw in one more in andy um because scott you made the comment about this uh phrase that old old school golf was hey you got to get on tour you got to lose you don't you can't win until you lose. You have to learn that whole thing. And you have to go through your 20s. And I've got this sort of, I don't know if the theory, but it's, I, I, to me, it's obvious. Generationally, now we do have U.S. kids tournaments in different parts of the country. Brendan does them. I post them at my, my club. Every generation going back so many years, the youth golfer became, had better equipment, better overall instruction, better playing ability, better better everything. So to me, it was absolutely a no brainer that kids, you know, I'm getting older yeah. too. I mean, they were getting on a tour and went immediately. 
Yeah. I mean, again, people are like these kids are so fearless and whatever. No, they're not. They're just smarter and they're not they're even smarter. Yeah. They just have better information than we did when we were younger. I mean, you, you know, again, I have been a little timid about talking about meditation through the beginning of my, my teaching this. I'm from Texas. I feel like I should be in California selling avocado and sprout sandwiches when I talk about <laughs> meditation. But at the end of the day, where I started getting a lot more confident about it is obviously Como is one of my best friends still. We've talked about Tiger and meditation, nothing specifically. Don't sue him for his NDA Tiger. But I'm aware of what Tiger did, does, whatever, when he got away from it, because he talked to Tom Rinaldi after the the whole blow up car wreck, you know, what happened. And he's like, you know, I got away from my core principles, my Buddhist principles for my mom. I got away from my meditation practice. So at this point, and then you get a guy like George Mumford, who has a book called The Mindful Athlete, and you get him talking about working with, I mean, Jordan, Kobe, LeBron, like the all-time greats. And then you go to the coaches, Phil Jackson, Pete Carroll, Pat Riley, like, oh, this is, if I had known 25 years ago, this is what they were doing. I was doing everything. I was turning over every rock I possibly could have. Now, I would not have been a good meditator, but I would have been less of an asshole than I was on the course. It, it would have helped to some point. And so just, just better information. You just, that's why every knowledge is cumulative. I mean, the guy who designed, I literally just watched this physics thing because I, I took my kids to Six Flags in Chicago this weekend. And it just, these magnetic roller coasters blow my mind. And I was like, I can't believe I've never researched how they work. So I just went and watched it all. And I'm like, it's so obvious and so simple. It's, it's just literally mind boggling. But the guy that actually created it could not have created it without all of the other mathematicians over the last 6,000 years. If he just had to start from scratch, it's like, good luck. You're going to figure out two plus two first in some sort of a numbering system. You can't, you don't get to jump to magnetic roller coasters. That's, I don't, you don't get to jump to 70% throwing out a random guess of a number of players on the PGA tour meditating. And that will be 95% at some point. You'll always have some holdouts who are just like, that's not for me. Well, your competition's doing, it, and that's why they're not freaking out. To your point of the original question is about getting out there and learning how to win. How about if you just don't even think about winning and you just play golf and you just pick optimal targets over and over and over again and you finish and you're like, how'd I do? I mean, that technically is possible. And I do believe that is optimal. I don't believe using game theory in golf to try to take the situation into play is a good idea. JT Poston, I mean, I, I mentioned him earlier, but like before we went on, like, I get it. He wants to win. We're not idiots. But I also think it's a lot of bravado to say, I'm not, I don't, I'm not worried about the 260,000. Okay. How about the 92 FedEx cut points that moves you up another 10 spots towards getting to the, to the tour championship Would those help? Cause then you got a chance of winning. Oh, I don't know, like 15 million, whatever the number is this year. Like I get it. You want to win, but I could probably mathematically prove his best chance of winning was laying up and making birdie and the other guy making double or whatever it was would have taken than him actually making the Eagle to do it all himself. I mean, I think that's a pretty simple mathematical thing to prove. So, okay, JT, I get it. You want to win. Your best way to win is by laying up. And guess what? Your best way to make the tour championship is by laying up. And again, he was in a unique spot with a three-shot cushion over third place. So he didn't need to go on to make snowman. But I still disagree with his logic of why he went for it. Now, it's a better spot to be. But, but again, in golf... Golf is such a unique game. I know I go on tangents, so wind me up. But golf is just such a unique game because there's no shared ball, no defense. 
game theory just doesn't work. If I'm better than you at poker and you're betting like a maniac, I don't know what the hell you're doing. You certainly will beat me some. If, if we had took equivalent golfers, if you just happen to wake up with a hand and I, and I do too, and you happen to win, like you literally, the worst poker player on the planet can win against the best player, poker player on the planet. Not often, but it can happen. The worst golfer on the planet can never beat a tour player. They can't beat a scratch. I've got a buddy who's a, a, a hovers between plus one and one. We've played probably 200 times. He's never beat me. I mean, and I'm hovering between a plus five and six. Now I do pay rent in his kitchen. So it's, uh, it's pretty easy to get into his head if he's, if he's got me by one with three to go. But people don't realize you just, you, you don't have control over the outcome in golf at all. And simply because you don't, you, you don't play with a shared ball, there is no defense. And, and even more so, there's not even a, a shared clock. I mean, I guess Liv plays with a shotgun start, but it's very unique to get to the last hole and know I've got a big shot on second or third. Nobody behind me can catch me. I can do something stupid here and it's not going to hurt me. That's just literally never happens. Three times a year, I bet. I bet that that, that actually scenario comes down. And so you're out there just wasting all of your mental energy by trying to find all these little spots to take advantage of something. And there's just not an advantage to be taken. Yeah, so I've been a a admirer of decade from from you know a distance here the last few years and been watching a lot of of uh you know the stuff and and people talking about it on social media and and uh i think it's awesome what you've done and i've always been amazed i was just before i came back home i was just on the back of the range of champions hitting balls and there's an ajga event there this week and you watch these kids swing golf club and it looks like a tour event right every one of them swings a club just amazingly well but they don't all play well then you look at the scores yep yep, and the reason they don't all play well lies in here in this conversation that we're having so i'm telling uh, you zalatoris hit the ball every bit as good as he does right now when he was 17 years old he hits it a little bit longer so he, he is a better player but like he doesn't hit it better. And, and that kid was ranked 3,300 in the world as a junior, Great. let alone he hasn't played a golf tournament this year and he's still 19th. <laughs> I believe, I mean, it's, it's amazing how, how well trained these kids are in the technical aspects of swinging a golf club. It's, it's just amazing. Um, so it's been great to talk about decades. Scott, where can our listeners get more information and get more involved in decade? Just decade.golf, you know, at this point, uh, fortunately for me, it's pretty easy just to Google decade golf. You'll find some good and some bad, but uh, I, I, I like to tell announcers how it is sometimes and it gets me in a little bit of trouble, but I, I really do feel like it's time that, that we catch up and do our job a little bit better. So if you Google my name or decade, you're going to find plenty of stuff or just go to decade.golf. I've got uh, some great people handling my marketing. Now I've, I've said for the last six or seven years, we've been successful in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. And I finally, uh, I finally am happy. I've, I've just said, I want to just make the app perfect until I, until I do that. I don't really want to pour fuel on this fire. And now I've, I, the, the app is done. It's perfect. It's exactly how I want it. So we finally hired an outside marketing company. So now at this point, you can find all kinds of content out there. Awesome. Well, if if you're if you're into golf like most of our listeners are and and you care about getting better, 
most of us have the DNA of our golf swings that are built into to our bodies and really it's hard to change, but there are some things that you can do to change and become a better player and uh, start to lower those scores. So I think the key to that is real quick before we end this, the key to all that is, is when you finish around a golf and think you should have shot lower than you did, which we all do on hundred percent of our rounds, even our career best. You're like, ah, I even missed that five footer on six. I'm like, well, I bet you made a couple putts like yeah. a five footer on the PJ tour is only 75%. Yeah. Um, but, but you, what you've got to do that I didn't do is when you think you should have shot lower is really dig into why, like what were the mistakes that led you feel that way and then be objective. Am I correct or not? Which is exactly what tiger did when he came up with his five rules that I've talked about so much now, which are how many double bogeys, how many bogeys on par fives, how many three putts, how many bogeys with nine iron or less. I tell people just to track from inside 150 for guys and 130 for girls. And then for him, how many blown easy saves, but I tell people to track how many two chips. And if you, again, if you think back to your last round and you think about the shots that you feel like you should have shot lower. If it's not one of those five, you're kidding yourself. So those are really the five mistakes that you repeatedly can pretty easily fix in advance. Like I, if I screw this up from 120, it's going to be a tiger five mistake. How do I just not make bogey here? And once you kind of understand that and then just trust the birdies will be there, then it's all pretty, pretty simple from there. And that's, that's exactly what we try to teach in the decade app. Love it. Decades, decades gold for people who love this game. Thank you. Um, okay, guys, moving on to a little bit of what happened last week. Um, it was the last event of the regular season before the playoffs. Um, there was some drama out there, Brendan. I was, uh, I was pulling for JT, man, JT, Justin Thomas, JT. (laughs) And, uh, that was kind of heartbreaking just, you know, despite him being in his own head recently, um, that he's one one out from that last spot, but I'm excited for our local boy Sam Ryder getting in. He I think he's at 60, 63. Um, I don't know if I like how the postseason's a little bit different. Um, I kind of liked it before when they when they weren't going directly into the seventy. Um, but you know, as we as we look forward, you, you got to still kind of look at those top top three guys as being the favorites. Um, there's really nobody that's been hot that stands out to me uh, that might be able to get it done other than those, those top three guys. So. Yeah. Bobby. Yeah. I think Russell Henley needs uh, Scott's help. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, the, the guy, you know, he, he plays so well, but it, it seems like he's always there, always there, always there, but something is a disconnect at the end. I mean, great talent. He's, you know, he's won, but, um, yeah, Lucas Glover. Wow. I mean, that's a good perseverance there. Um, I got to, uh, got to put a plug in for our friend, Bill Pressey, who was on one of our, our shows uh, with his Mez lab, lab golf. Uh, so Lucas using the Mez same and broomstick wise. And everybody's using that damn putter right now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. I'm using it. <laughs> I played the other mm-hmm. night and, Made a whole bunch of putts from serious uh, distance, and everybody's like, "What is that thing you're using?" Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a heck of a the Mez Lab Golf, Bill Presley. We need to get you back on. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, that would have been the ultimate JT scenario too that he would hold that. I mean, that would be like plastic, oh, you know, like crazy. And it, and it it like jumped in and yeah, it yeah, was, it was close. So the other thing that came out this week was 
the response for the PGA of America and the PGA Tour mm. on bifurcation issue. Scott, um, what are your thoughts on on what's going on there? Uh, I, I like it. I actually was consulted the PGA Tour. Jason Gore uh, reports to the commissioner, and he asked me if I would talk with a couple of their guys on a webinar a few months ago about bifurcation about what they can do with course setups and just other stuff and you know based on my experience and i know it's easy to say like bifurcation works in baseball or just whatever but again baseball i still i also have to feel like that batting is not the only part of the game and this is as a baseball layperson i've got to think that swinging a, a wooden bat is a lot more similar to a, a an aluminum bat wooden bat and aluminum bats are, are similar the swing is still kind of the same. I get it. We've got a different weight and just everything else, but the mechanics are, I'm assuming most likely similar. And the problem with bifurcation in golf is you've got the college kids that the PJ tour university, like that's important. I get it that the PJ tour current exempt players are the most important, but the, the, the pipeline is extremely important. And so you're going to take those kids and they've got to play the, the juiced ball through the NCAA championship. People are like, they should start playing the pro ball sooner. Like, well, then they wouldn't be ranked number one in the world. Like I would not advise anyone to do that. That's a bad idea. So they would all have to play the juice ball. Then people say, well, they should split their practice time. That's not going to work. You don't have enough time with college and tournaments and travel and everything already. I don't have time to practice with both balls. And so now you're expecting those kids to finish the NCAA championships, you know, the first week of June or whatever it is, and then make their first start at a PGA Tour University two weeks later. And with the new shortened seasons, shortened just being wraparound seasons, they don't have enough tournaments to, to adjust and, and the analogy that I can explain this to people is when I decided to enter Q school, I think it was in 2011 or 12, I wasn't planning on entering Q school. And then just at the last second, I was like, hey, you know, I'm playing pretty decent. Why not throw away 5,000 bucks? So I entered and literally the week before one of my buddies uh, from the plays on tour called me. He's like, hey, I, I know you're entering Q school, but like you do realize that the groove rule went into effect this year. Just like your wedges are probably all illegal. And I'm like, I'm really glad you said that because I for sure would have showed up and played the first round either with a four shot penalty or with about 10 clubs. Okay. And so I, I went down to the PGA Tour Superstore. I bought the new legal wedges and I thought just in my casual rounds, I thought, I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with them. And then I got in the, in the qualifier window. Okay, now you really need to hit your distances. And yeah. I was just getting kind of knuckleball, like just none of it was the same. And again, when people say that the adjustment period is going to be hard, it's like they think I say people are going to shoot 80 or something. I made it through first age of Q school that year, but I definitely was not as sharp as I could have been. And you're just not going to waltz out of college and compete on the PGA Tour unless you're as sharp as you can possibly be. And so that's, to me, a way to just artificially slow down this. I mean, everyone's having fun watching all these young players right now, I assume, except for the old guys. It's, it's making the game more energized, in my opinion. It's, it's just a lot better game. And so artificially slowing that down, I think, is a really, really bad idea. The, the main point is, I do believe that about 195 is the maximum usable ball speed in golf. And I know people are like, 195, holy shit, that's pretty fast. But people think that it's going to just compound to infinity. And I've worked with a guy named James Hart Dupree, who has 205 to 10 mile an hour ball speed. And we, we played a couple months ago. And there were like two or three shots where they just weren't bad shots. But instead of being a 21 or 200 RPM, it's that, you know, that 1500 knuckleballer that we all see. Luckily, though, our ball hits the trees and falls down. 
And he had some shots from like, that wasn't a bad shot. And it is just knuckleballing like three fairways over. I do believe that like 195 and that still is an incredible talent to get that in play. I don't think we have to worry about it compounding to infinity from here. I think the distance thing is pretty much done. I mean, the, the 170 guys are going to get up to 178, but the window where it's like 165 to 185 right now, it's just going to compress into like 177 to 186. Like that's where I think 90% of tour players will be in, in just a matter of years, but it's not going to be faster than that. Bobby, yeah. I know you want to jump in and I, Andy, I know you do too, but I want to just put my, my two cents in before I forget about it. Um, this topic, like so many other in our game, is something where I keep going back and forth based on experts that I hear. So Scott's got some information that I'm sitting here going, oh, this makes a hell of a lot of sense. And then I did a, I'm doing a two-part interview with, with David uh, McClay Kidd, who did band in and a, and a bunch of courses, the architect. And I took his perspective in that interview I did with him on the golf course side of things. Um, and it's just, I don't know if we're, we're never going to be able to appease everybody in the situation. It's just, we have to come up with the best case for the game. Um, that's what it comes down to. But I know what to, to be clear, I would be fine with a rollback on everyone. I don't think it's necessary. The bifurcation. Yeah, I don't think that's necessary because we're in this golf boom, right? Maybe in 10 years, but we're in this golf boom right now. If exactly. I was a 16 or 18 year old kid that had been working my ass off to hit it 300, I woke up tomorrow and you said you hit it 260 now. It's not that I'd quit, but I would play less. Of course. <laughs> it would be really annoying. I don't think there's any reason to piss off all of our, our new players right now. Let's do that in a few years, maybe, because I do agree it's a problem. I yeah. just don't agree we should do anything about it right now. And we damn sure shouldn't bifurcate it. Carry on. Sorry. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more on, on that last point. We should not bifurcate. There's no reason to bifurcate. I am a believer that I think it would not be a bad thing to just roll back everything. And to me, if, if you're the longest hitter at the club, you're still going to be the longest hitter at the club by probably the same percent. If the math works out that way, who knows? But I just think in general, you know, I remember, you know, when I was a kid growing up playing and I hit the ball, you know, further than most of the other kids I was playing with, I wasn't hitting it as far as I hit it now, like not even close. And it was still, by comparison, it was impressive, right? So I think that that little point still exists that by comparison, the joy of hitting the ball far will not be diminished at all. The, the, the one thing that I, and again, this is just something that people talk about, like, well, making a standardized ball to where it spins more or whatever, that would just magically be optimized for some player's swing. I mean, there's a reason there are all these different golf balls. And I don't think that you should standardize anything with the ball other than limiting its speed simply because that would just be just giving someone congratulations. You just got a huge benefit and someone else would have the worst possible outcome of that. So I don't think that that's the deal. And then when you talk about just like making drivers all have more loft or the ball goes shorter, I honestly, one of my biggest concerns, if you make the ball go shorter, but you don't make the driver smaller no one will ever miss a fairway. I mean, yeah. on the LPGA tour right now, nobody misses a fairway. If you just all of a sudden yeah. made the PGA tour 
the similar characteristics of distance without changing every single course on the planet. Again, this is where people don't really think about the flip side. Well, I'm having to add T-boxes. Okay, well, how about do you want to change literally every course on the planet? Because everything that's been built in the last 20 years, the bunkers would be absurdly wide. They would all be in stupid places. Like it's just not a tidy answer once you run the counterfactual on the other side. Yep, exactly. Bobby. Yeah, Scott. So like at 3.30 in the morning last night, I emailed <laughs> these guys. And I, I couldn't sleep. I was so mad at my association, PJ America, sending the, the memo and Seth Waugh signs it. And I'm thinking, why didn't John Linder, who's the president, who's a friend of mine, I went up to chairs when I was in the mid-Atlantic section with John. He was in Michigan. I just, I was really, really disappointed, pissed off. Um, didn't like the way it was handled. Like it's coming at the last minute uh, with this, you know, more data, more of this. And then it grouped all the PGAs in the, in the world. And, you know, I worked at headquarters. There's a good collaboration, but it's the first time I've seen headquarters say, hey, guys, let's all get together. That never happens. I mean, just really, really ticked the hell, freaking ticked me off. I got I to admit, um, really pissed off. Couldn't get back to sleep for a while. Um, yeah, but, you know, I was thinking back to in 1994, I was at uh, River Run Golf Club in Ocean City, Maryland. Gary Player Design Course. Gary shows up multiple times looking at the course. We did some events for his Blair Athol School, and we were on the 18th hole. And I was playing decent at the time, and I hit this big drive, and he goes, well, you hit it, Ernie Els. Uh, no, actually, so it would have been 893, I think. Because uh, he goes, you hit it like Ernie Els or distance or something. I said, we also, who's that? And he goes, you watch. There's a young kid coming over here. I think Ernie won the U.S. Open the next year. And Gary had a, a bunch of people around the club the one day. And he goes, Mark, my, this, no, this was in 94, I think he said. He goes, there's going to be the transformation of golf is going to be the athlete. There's going to be a Michael Jordan that gets into golf. And so I was going to say to you, I know the ball's an issue. I know the club. For years, I've said, take away the fitness trailers. What if these golfers today <laughs> finish the round and go to the bar like they did years ago? Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe you don't need to roll the ball back. I mean, this is where, again, like I just I, I do feel like it's just romantic views of the past where anytime you want to have a conversation about is the quality field on the PGA Tour better now than it was in years ago. Yep. And anyone who doesn't say unequivocally, it's so much better now, it's absurd. And it has been in every progressive five year, even when people say nobody was playing in 2000 to 2005 or whatever it is, like every five year set is progressively better, period. Um so these guys are just, they're just really, really, really good at golf. But what Ty, I mean, again, Tiger did bring in a different athlete. Gary and Tiger did usher in fitness. Bernhard Longer is showing fitness on the Champions Tour. So is Stricker. I mean, it's weird. The fittest guys on the Champions Tour are the ones that are kicking everyone's butt every week. Like it's, there you go. And, 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 and so back, back to where I started with, you know, by saying I'm, I'm a pretty big, pretty athletic guy. Um, I'm tiny out there on tour now. I mean, like everyone is my size and I was an absolute giant back in the day. And so it is a better athlete. That's when people just laugh again, like the no laying up fried egg type people where they're just like, oh, it's all the athlete. I'm like, yeah, it is. I mean, I don't care who you are. It takes some skill to move a, a, a stick 120 plus miles an hour and put it on a dime every single time. I mean, again, I've, 
I've, I've done these arguments on Twitter, unfortunately, where I've bought an old Mizuno XR Gold and a Strata. The reason I buy a Strata, 25-year-old Strata, is because it's a solid core ball. When people run these tests of against a Titleist bottle, like, well, there's a liquid ball. Did you weigh it? Because the water's evaporated. You're hitting a marshmallow now. So the first solid core ball that was actually legitimate, I bought a dozen Stratas, an XR Gold, the first great big Bertha with the red Graffaloi shaft that everyone had. And I've produced 170 plus mile an hour ball hit, ball, ball speed in here live on Instagram with every single one of them. It, it, is, it is easier to do with a modern club, but a six foot one, 215 pound guy has been able to do it with anything you put in front of me for over 30 years. And that's just the way it is now. Golf, when I was growing up, was not a sport. It was a skill like bowling. Golf is officially a sport. And I will, I will get the last word in on this topic because <laughs> the, the it's one leaning thing, in. He's for, leaning for in. me, yeah, I'm leaning in. For me, the one thing that people ignore all the time, and and I agree, Scott, fitness is is a big deal. The ball itself is a big deal. The clubs are a big deal. To me, the biggest factor is intent. The intent of the player as he swings at a driver now is so different than it ever was in the history of this game. I, when I was growing up, it's a, people, great, it's a great point. People marveled at how smooth people swung a golf club, right? At, at how, how rhythm and tempo were the things that everyone really strove for. And now, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting together a TikTok video about this. It's just taken me a few weeks. But I've got I've got a video of Sam Snead um, hitting some drivers and a video of Justin Thomas. And you watch the two of them swing a driver and you're like, they're not even doing the same thing. No, I get it. Equipment's different, all that. But the intent of the player today is entirely different than it ever was. And I think that's that is as big, if not the biggest thing that that has affected this distance thing. I mean, it, that's, that's just exactly correct. If you want to drive me crazy is when somebody says, you know, they're playing a 44 inch driver and, and try to get them to hit 46. And they're like, I mean, I already hit it far enough. Like no further is better in all circumstances further is better. And I'm even said that when the, when the first great big Berthas came out and they were getting an inch or an inch and a half longer than what I was playing was like a 43 and a half that, that uh, Cobra that everybody hit back in the day. I, uh, with a steel shaft, I was like, well, what do I need a longer shaft for? I, I already hit it past everyone. What I'm, I'm good. Cause every time I would hit the, the, those longer shafts on the range without a launch mark again, late nineties, I'd be like, I'm hitting it all. I'm hitting it all over the face. Well, of course you are. It, you haven't figured out how to swing it yet. So like stick with it, that that'll stop. But hey, without a launch monitor and without even having the, the thought to take it out on a course, like, guess what? That one you just necked went as far as your one right out of the middle of the face of the inch and a half shorter driver. And guess what? Every once in a while, you will connect on it. And so getting these players, like you say, not only intent, but just like, well, I'm not going to not play the longest driver I can just because I feel like I already hit it far enough. We're going to we're gonna need a better reason than that. I mean, I hate to rag on Billy Horschel, but th there was an Instagram video floating around about him a couple of weeks ago where he was complaining about the guy he was playing with T-marks were all over his face. And he's like, if you look at my driver, the T-mark is in the exact same place every single time. I'm like, you don't realize this, but you're actually saying I'm an idiot and didn't adapt. Like you, that's literally what you're saying. You now own a club where you can hit it all over the face and it's fine. So swing it faster because faster is better. And again, like I'm kidding, Billy, in case you are a big fan of this podcast, <laughs> but literally you just didn't adapt. You should be hitting it 
on a slightly larger uh, area of the club face. Again, not too big, but we don't have to hit it on the, uh, you know, in the screws anymore or on a screw. We've got about a quarter we can work with. Okay. We're working toward the end of the show here. Um, The one bit of news that we didn't talk about yet is Bryson DeChambeau uh, shot 58 this weekend in the live event, um, which leads us right to our favorite segment of don't be that guy. So if you'll pull up TikTok, Instagram, whatever, Facebook, there's people all over the place that love to say how Bryson, yeah, he shot 58, but he's not playing real golf or he's not playing in a real event or, and, you know, really people, I mean, you can not like live. I mean, God knows I'm, I'm right there with you, but he's playing real golf. Don't be that guy. That's got to start throwing those bombs out there because 58 and yes, as Scott pointed out earlier, it was ball in hand, which makes it, you know, significantly uh, more easy. But the fact is that still 58 went around that golf course in 58 shots, Yep, which is amazing. So, okay. So new segment, Scott, you're on the hot seat here. Um, we're going to, we're going to ask you nine quick questions and you're just going to rifle off your answers. Perfect. I'm terrible at this game, but I'll try. It's called called the quiet, please back nine. So, okay. What's your lowest 18 hole score? 62. What are your 60? And I was like, that's not correct. 62. Just 10 (laughs) under. What are your three favorite golf courses that you played? Uh, Augusta National, tough one for that not to be on there. Uh, I would say Pebble Beach was incredible, and I played the U.S. Open at Pioneers number two, so I want to say that one. Um, I will go with that one. Okay, what are the three golf courses you would love to play that you haven't? Um, you know, again, I'm just not a big golf course. I would say Cypress, Pine Valley, um, and Wingfoot. I almost got to play Wingfoot a couple of weeks ago, but the air quality alert happened on my day. I was going to play. It was brutal. <laughs> the Canadian fires. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Name the three best players of all time in no order. Uh, Tiger Woods. I'll go with Jack, but I don't even know if I would stand by that. Technically, if I really thought about it, I'll go with Tiger, Jack. This is a controversial one, Mickelson. That is controversial. <laughs> I mean, to just to just be so good, you never lose your card, and you kind of win every year is just incredible. Okay. Nobody's going to argue with you on that. <laughs> um, that's that's why I think saying the five best players that's one thing. The three best players, everyone's going to pick Tiger and Jack. It's the third one that's interesting. It's kind of like pick a number, like like rate something between one and ten, but you can't choose three or seven. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. you got to kind of take it one position. <laughs> so, what's the best part of your game? Driver by far. What's the worst part? Um, I would say my irons. Again, this is where I've worked with Keith Mitchell for over a year and a half now. And Keith, at the end of last year, he's like, what do I got to do to get better? I'm like, I think it's obvious. You need to hit your irons better. He's like, I know. And I'm working on it. I'm like, be careful, man, because you're the best driver of the golf ball on the planet. Yep. And you have been for like five straight years. So you you start working on hitting down on it more and the ball back in your stance. And you, I don't think people realize how much your grip changes with the ball up in your stance to getting it back. Like, 
just really hard to be good at both. And I do drive it great. And I do struggle with my irons. So in your opinion, what skills are most important to play great golf? Driving. I thought that's where Bob and I were going to get an argument earlier about hitting <laughs> practicing driver immediately. I, I do. I assume the Hogan quote that I've used a million times is actually Hogan, but the quote of if you can't putt, you can't score, but if you can't drive, you can't play is so correct. It's unbelievable. And again, I literally am playing to like a plus seven this year in, in, in golf tournaments. And I am not even a member to country club. I play golf at best a couple times a week, but I drive it really good almost every time I tee it up and it's kind of hard to screw it up from there. Awesome. Okay. PGA tour live PGA tour, but I don't, I don't have a problem with live. I, I, I have zero problem with live. Who's your favorite golfer past or present tiger. Not even a second place either. <laughs> well, that was uh, that was awesome having you on the show, Scott. Yeah, we, no doubt. We really Thank appreciate you. Uh, thanks for inviting me on, and thanks for uh, for all the support over the years that I can assume has been there since uh, you guys have been cool. I appreciate it. Yep, for sure. Okay, guys. Eighteenth yeah. tee, um, Bobby. Yeah, Scott, you get a wicked awesome from me. <laughs> Perfect. Being the Boston guy. Um, hopefully you're okay with this, but uh, it occurred to me the other day at my club. I've been a big proponent of going out twilight golf. We do a lot of twilight golf at the club. You see the course different. It's relaxing, everything. If, if anybody has a chance to walk and use one club, go play your golf course, even 150 yards and in one club, get creative. Just something about walking at night, taking the one club, it's uh, I, I think it's good for the game. Good for the soul. I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, I think it's just, if we're just having fun, I mean, it, it's obviously not our op most optimal use of time for getting better, but I definitely think it's a great use of time for having fun. But I, one thing I will say, I have a story for everything, but when I was playing the gold mare tour in like 99 or 2000, there was a hurricane coming in and we went out to Loxahatchee cause we're idiots and we're going to sit through the hurricane went out to Loxahatchee to play one club wolf. And we got out there and they'd actually taken all the pins and tees in so they wouldn't become projectiles. But we played one club wolf without knowing where the flag was in about a 50 mile an hour wind. And it was, was fun. fun. It was, it was by far the most fun I've ever had on a golf course. Yeah. Uh, you got to do it. Although I will, I'm going to, God dang it. I, I'm going to throw this Ben Haddon is one of the good, good guys. He and I yeah. just did a video two weeks ago and they've got a deal where you're, you hit two balls and then you flip a, a T and if it's pointing at you, you get to choose which one you play. And if it's pointing at your opponent, they get to choose. So it's not best ball or worst ball. It's really the T flip. But so what's interesting is if you hit a great first shot or a bad first shot, like it still matters to try on the second one because you may or may not like after you whip a three foot putt, you're like, damn it, if it's worst ball, but you still want to make the second one because you might win the T flip. <laughs> it was a it was a lot of fun i'm just i was wanted to throw yeah. that out there in case people want to play it at home because it was it was a blast that's a good one brendan 18t so scott again uh appreciate you coming on it's fascinating stuff i will definitely be sending you an email to see how i can start to use some of the stuff with my kids um one one thing that i that i did uh two weeks ago in my last camp of the summer with some of my my students was I did a skins game, but it was different. And I put up the money because um, I want these kids to learn certain principles that aren't anything to do with mechanics. So I did a skins game 
individual and I had a team. I had two guy team or two man teams of how many shots within a hundred yards that they it took them to get down and in. Um, and what that did was fascinating. Like one thing we got their stats at the end of how many shots out of the total number of shots they took that a hundred yards and in composed of. And I've told them a million times percentage wise where that kind of falls. But these kids had an eye-opening moment when we did it for money, my money that I put up, and they were really focused and they really looked at it um, a little bit differently. Um, so there's there's a lot of ways. Scott's Scott's system is awesome, but there's a lot of ways for kids to get better that has nothing to do with beating balls on the range. And I think that's so important for kids to understand. That only gets you so far. That's not playing the game. That's working on your technique. So. I hope this this uh, this episode gets out there to some of my kids that I insist that they listen to this one. Um, Scott, thank you. Absolutely. I mean, again, it really is like again. I say it all the time, but if you think you should have shot lower, it's it's your it's your. It's one of two things: you're not as good as you think you are, or you made mental and strategic mistakes. And the problem, yep. like you were saying, is nobody has an organized way of working on their mental and strategic mistakes. And that's again, that's the point of the decade. The decade app is to say. This is a math game. Again, I don't like to say that just to be scary, but it is a math game. And as a result, you can solve that math problem on any given shot. Again, back when I got to argue with Colt Nose, he's like, dude, we're just arguing about a shot here. Like, I, I have a different opinion than you. I'm like, no, 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 I don't have an opinion. I've got facts. You have an opinion and it's wrong, but you don't get to just say two plus two equals five because it's your opinion. That's an incorrect opinion of the factual answer. I mean, so if, you, if you're frustrated this is it. I mean, yeah. Yep. All right, everybody. Uh, great show. Alan, hurry back. Um, we need you. <laughs> <laughs> you guys did great. I don't love being in the host spot here. Um, but Scott, thanks again for coming on. It was great. Everybody reach out, you know, decade.golf. Um, it's awesome stuff. And, uh, we'll be back next week with, with another guest and, uh, Ryder Cup talk probably heating up yep. here as we go. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Night, everybody. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. You only have one opportunity to sell your golf property. Shouldn't you partner with an expert that offers you 30-plus years of golf industry experience combined with the reach of a global leader in real estate? Collier's International Golf Brokerage and Advisory Services understands your unique business needs. Whether it is brokerage, management, and consulting, be reassured that the market leader in the business of golf is providing you the real answers and practical solutions you deserve. Contact Golf Talk Live co-host and Collier's Golf Advisory Services member, Alan DePew, today at 717-554-8519. That's 717-554-8519.